Welcome to the future. You're listening to the Consensus Network. Consensus Network. Consensus Network. With Buck Joffrey. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Consensus Network. And before we get started, I want to remind you that um, if you go to consensusnetwork.io, there is a series of tutorials for those of you who are interested in buying into uh, buying some cryptocurrency for the first time. And and uh, there's some nice tutorials on not only how to buy Bitcoin or some of the major ones, but also how to trade. And there's also a link to Coinbase account. So if you decide you want to actually buy some, you can actually get $10 of free Bitcoin. And actually right now is a pretty good time to do that because it'll probably be worth a lot more eventually. And in the process, you will be giving me $10 of, not you personally, but Coinbase will be giving me $10 of Bitcoin as well, which is, of course, not a lot of money, but hey, why not? So anyway, check that out, consensusnetwork.io. And uh, also, I wanted to let you know that uh, there's a newsletter that I think is a good idea to get on. So make sure, again, to get on consensusnetwork.io and download that. And finally, uh, find me on Twitter. Uh, you can find it on, con- uh, find, look for Consensus Network, and there I am. So now let's talk a little bit uh, about the topic for the day. You know, the, I titled this The Conservative Investor's Case for Bitcoin. You know, speaking of crypto Twitter, right? And it's not like there's something that's really like a Twitter just for cryptocurrency, but there's like, you know, the same people kind of talking back and forth. And, and you know, um, so that the nickname for that is basically crypto Twitter. And you kind of get all the information there. And if you're following me, by the way, you'll see basically the people I'm following. That's that's crypto Twitter right there. But one of the favorite words that you see in this space right now is institutional okay now what does that even mean and what is the big deal about these so-called institutional investors coming in and why in the world would we care anyway if they came in or what well some people say well they're going to bring in a lot of money well that's true they are but there has been big money in crypto uh, in the crypto markets for some time now in the form of hedge funds family offices and wealthy individuals all of which tend, though, to have a greater appetite for risk than, say, the really big money, you know, like pension funds or university endowments. Uh, the latter, these these more conservative-type funds, they're more conservative because their primary objective, frankly, is to not lose money. They are in charge of money that, you know, that has to go out, has to support universities, has to support people over time. And the last thing they want to do is to lose money, right? If they need to make money, especially those pensions, but losing it would be catastrophic. And to lose money, well, crypto is certainly a good place to do that, as we've seen in the past few weeks. So why then would the Yale University Endowment lead the charge into diversifying into the blockchain space? I mean, you got to wonder why, why are you, why are, and why are other universities following? Because after uh, Yale, I think Stanford and some other universities did this as well. Well, the issue is that there is risk in participating, and that's obvious, right? There's a risk in participating in this volatility and everything else that goes along with this, but there's also risk in not participating. 
And say, for example, uh, you have an endowment. They decide to put in 1% of its assets, which is still a lot, by the way. And we're talking about, you know, really big endowments. But say they put a 1% of their endowment into into some sort of cryptocurrency fund or some sort of index or whatever. If that 1% went down to zero, which I will say, uh, you know, if, if they're careful about it, is highly unlikely within the next, you know, several years. The overall effect on the portfolio, even if it went down to zero, though, would still be negligible, right? Because you're only talking about like 1% of, you know, in entire funds. On the flip side of that, and potentially, in my view, a much more likely scenario is that that 1% returned a full 1,000%. In other words, it 10xed, right? Over the next two or three years, uh, which could absolutely happen, that small risk would lead to a really appreciable difference in the overall yield of a fund. And this is what you call asymmetric risk. It's an asymmetric risk profile investment. And cryptocurrency in particular is the quintessential example of that. Now, I should point out that, frankly, that as an individual buyer of cryptocurrencies, I have small investments in dozens of projects, I think some 40 odd, 40, 40, 50 projects. And certainly there are some that I have greater conviction in and that I consider less risky, uh, such as Bitcoin, that I'm willing to buy a little bit more of. But the vast majority of the these alternative coins out there are still quite risky, in my humble opinion. And I fully expect that out of those 40 to 50 projects, a number of them aren't going to make it. But it doesn't really matter because if you look at it from the perspective of believing that some of them will make it and they will make it with 10, you know, with the 10x or 100x, you're still going to come out ahead. So that's kind of the way I approach it. And anyway, the bottom line is I think that from the institutional side, there's an understanding of that, right? There's an understanding that there's a real opportunity to make money with this sort of asymmetric risk profile and a, a loss may not be as de that devastating. And so I think that's what you're seeing here. Anyway, my guest today, though, is, uh, is, is understands this well. She comes from the traditional financial world where she was really an expert in, in options trading. Um, after a successful career, she ultimately sold her business, retired. But then she saw this whole thing happen, this Bitcoin phenomena, and she came out of retirement. Uh, and now she has her own podcast, Seeing Crypto, and her name is Kim Snyder. And when we come back, she's going to tell us why you should invest in Bitcoin even if, you know, after all these podcasts and everything that you've talked about, you still don't get it and you don't know why it works, she's going to tell you why it still might be worth uh, putting a little bit of money into. So when we come back, Kim Snyder. Now, there isn't much more exciting than cryptocurrency, but there are old-fashioned ways of creating wealth outside of Wall Street that have been used by the wealthiest families in the world for generations. And that's what my other podcast is all about. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, if you've made a lot of money in crypto and don't know what to do next, this show might actually answer a lot of those questions, too. Again, it's Wealth Formula Podcast with me, Buck Joffrey. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Kim Snyder, and she is the host of Sane Crypto Podcast, which we will get into a little bit. 
in a bit. Now, Kim has spent 20 years as an entrepreneur, options trader, investment advisor, and financial educator. She is uh, the creator of the Snyder Investment Method, which I presume is because you are Kim Snyder. <laughs> Good <laughs> guess. Which is a system, she says, uh, produces consistent cash flow from paper assets at a significantly higher rate than traditional non-engineered investments. And after selling her investment firm, she was ready to call it a career, I guess, until she became interested in cryptocurrency. So much so that she ultimately started this podcast that was called Sane Crypto. Kim, thank you very much for being on the show today. Buck, thank you so much for having me. I have been looking forward to this conversation for the last week. Oh, so good. it's good. going to be great. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about your background as an investor, because I think it's fascinating. Um, as I understand it, uh, you hit it big back in the 90s, uh, back in the old, uh, I guess, the uh, IPO days. And, uh, and, and you had your money sort of evaporate on you. What happened? Sure. Actually, I, I really, it predates a little bit the, uh, uh, maybe it foreshadowed the upcoming IPO boon. But when I was right out of college, um, I was fortunate enough to went go to work for a company that was doing about $36 million a year in sales. And I started as a part-time clerk in their purchasing department. And there's, there's a, a funny story there. I won't... Uh, bore you. But what ended up happening is um, eight years later, they were doing a billion dollars a year in sales. I was no longer a clerk in the purchasing department. I was senior executive with the firm. And um, the last project that I worked on, along with a lot, a lot, a lot of other people in the company, was taking the company public. And so in that moment that our ticker symbol crossed the tape for the very first time, suddenly I had more money than you know most people would dream of having even after a lifetime of work right. and I was 29 years old. Yeah. So the problem was of course that although I had been to some of the finest schools this country has to offer, nowhere along the way had they taught me about personal finance or investing. So I did the thing that seemed the most adult, <laughs> the most reasonable, which was to turn it over to a big name Wall Street brokerage firm that everybody, unless they've lived their entire life living under a rock, knows the name of, you know, and they told me all the right things. They, they said, we'll take care of everything. This is what we do. You're young. You're, you've got a lot of money. You can afford to take a lot of risk. Um, if you need a check, don't worry, just ask. We'll have one in the mail because again, this kind of predates the internet. Well, definitely predates the internet. And, uh, and so I did the thing that most red blooded young Americans would do. I quit my job and proceeded to have a really good time. <laughs> yeah. So that lasted for about, um, two years during that period of time. I bought my first condo, which I was really proud of. I got into polo, which is still my passion uh, to this day, but you know, my, my, um, peers, they, some of them bought Ferraris, you know, I bought polo ponies. I, I joke, I probably would have been better off buying the Ferraris because they hold their value better. Um, and two years later, my phone rings and they say, Ms. Snyder, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but your money's all gone. And 
So not only was that money gone, they had lost everything that I hadn't managed to spend, but there's this funny thing that happens when you don't have any money, no one's willing to give you any, but when you have money suddenly, everyone wants to give you more. So, you know, I was in debt up to my eyeballs. I ended up selling, you know, the condo at a loss. My, uh, you know, toys are repossessed and, uh, and I ended up having to start all over again. So, so was that <laughs> loss was that in the dot com? No, this was pre. It, this predates the the dot com. So, um, yeah. Right. So I was just wondering if I know the money predated it, but I just wondered if the loss of the money. Yeah, it was in the lead up to the dot com. Okay. What so what they were doing, Bucket is they and I only figured this out afterwards. If you know anything about IPOs, um, when these firms underwrite an IPO. Part of what they're doing is they have to, they're buying shares and they have to make a, what's known as the book for the IPOs. And during that period of time, a lot of these guys were um, taking the, the IPOs, they were underwriting that they couldn't make a book for, and they were offloading those IPO shares onto um, their, some of their unsuspecting clients. And that is, in fact, what I ended up with. So I ended up with an entire portfolio of, well, mostly a portfolio full of the uh, IPOs that, you know, they couldn't gener generate enough interest. The ones that the venture capital people didn't want yeah. or something, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, that uh, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's, it sucked bad. Um, but but you know what? I tell people I wouldn't change it for the world. Sure. Because everything that came after that w was the result of that, and that was me saying, you know what? Uh, I, you know, I, yeah, I I had to take a job that paid a fraction of the one sure. that I had left two years before. Um, but I decided, you know what? I'm I'm, I'm reasonably bright. I'm very ambitious. Even if it's just my 401k money, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to manage this money and I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to put myself in that situation again, ever that my financial well-being is in the hands of another human being. So I better figure this out and I better figure it out fast. And so that's what I started doing. I am lar largely self-educated, um, as I suspect you, many of your listeners are, um, I, you know, set about to figure out the world of investing and finance. I, and, and basically what I did is I started to reverse engineer a goal. And again, I think this will be a familiar goal for a lot of um, people listening. And that was to say, how do I make sure um, first of all, that that I never have to work for another idiot again because the job that I took was not one that I was super fond of. Um, but moreover, how do I make sure that no matter what happens to me in my life, that I can do what I want when I want without having to worry about how to pay for it, which is my definition of financial success. How do I make sure that if something happens and I get sick or I lose my job or I just want to go to the caves of Bolivia and chew on the coca leaves sure. for a year, that I have the cash flow to be the coming from my portfolio to be able to pay for that. And the cash flow revelation was the the important one because you can't eat capital appreciation, right? Mm -hmm. So my problem though was you know, I'm 30, 30 something years old by that point. And most 30 something year olds aren't thinking cash flow. I'm not in I, real estate's never been my thing. That's the way most people 
would look at generating higher levels of cash flow. The thing that I had learned and understood, I, I had um, over a period of years, I started to um, in options trading uh, for a while. I was an off-floor trader with the Chicago Board Options Exchange. So that was the thing I knew was that, right? And so in reverse engineering that, um, I started to put together a system for generating cash flow off of stocks at, right. you know, at, a, at a much higher rate than bonds and, and REITs and the, the typical things that you had right. available to you um, that could you know, take care of that um, that problem for me. So and that's really how the Snyder about... method came about. It was never, ever yeah. my intention to share it with anybody or, you know, grow it into anything. It was just my way of investing. Is and Snyder then over method, time, is it, I mean, is it basically using options, you know, basically to create cash flow from just, but you own stocks. I mean, we're, we're not, I'm not that facile in, in, in options but basically you you sell off your option if it expires you keep the money basically that that's kind of the is that the in effect what the Snyder method was in terms of your your cash flowing um, strategy I mean obviously it's a your method so I'm sure it's not that simple yeah it, and it isn't it, no it isn't that simple but um, to be clear um, I the investment firm that uh, you know uh, manage money still manages money and owns the Snyder method. Um, I sold a couple of years ago, so I have nothing to do with them. I'm not recommending this as an investment method. Right, right. Uh, I did invent it. It is, and it is still the way I manage my uh, money. But um, yeah, the so what I did really, Buck, is I didn't create anything new per se. What I did is I took a bunch of really commonplace ideas and principles, things like dollar cost averaging and um, um, laddered bonds and covered calls and just all of these kind of different ideas. And I put them together in a very unique way that created this very unique result um, that, I've, that I very specifically wanted for myself. Um, and it just so happened, a lot of other people wanted that too. And so that's kind of how I ended up um, in the in the business, people would come to me and say, "What are you doing? Teach me." Yeah. I started teaching them, and and we went from there. Good, good. Well, so uh, let's talk about crypto because that's kind of mm -hmm. where your focus is now. You you sold a business, right? You sold your firm, and you thought, "Well, gosh, I'm done now." But uh, but then came along crypto. How to get, to, tell us about that? How that? Yeah. I was retired, living here in South Carolina, playing polo, thinking, you know, if if you'd have asked me a year ago if I was ever going to get back into investing, I'd have said, no way. But what ended up happening was a friend of mine a couple years ago now um, inherited a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of cryptocurrency. And she started asking me questions about it, knowing that I'd been in the investment business. And I really... Um, I didn't have answers. Not only did I not have answers, my knee-jerk, uninformed reaction was sell that. It, that <laughs> right. It's a scam. Right. Get, get out, run. And what's you know funny about that is I knew nothing about it, right? But I think that is our natural inclination when we are not familiar with something is to think it, you know, it must be bad. Um, but oh, you know, she as she continued to thanks, thankfully I didn't say that out loud, and she didn't she didn't do that. 
And every time I talked to her, it would be worth more. <laughs> so obviously this is as it's going up in 2017. And that which started to pique my interest. And as I started to look into it, first, all I was trying to do was kind of to protect her is to say, okay, let me just figure out, is this a scam is, or is it, is it real? And, um, and I discovered, wow, this is not, not only is it not a scam, this is, this is really interesting, fascinating, really. Um, and then, okay, then how does it all work? How do you buy and sell it? And how do you value it? And where does it fit within a, a larger portfolio? And, you know, eventually I got to the point where, because that's what I do, you know, I started to create some systems for myself to invest in it so that I could become familiar with it. And, um, and at one point, you know, I was lamenting the, the, just the absolute awful garbage advice that was out there on the internet about cryptocurrencies, which I felt like were leading people to just lose money as so often the case. And she said to me, I, you know what, I don't get it. Like, this is what you did for all these years. Why wouldn't you help people with this? And I said, you know what? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, you're right. And so that's where saying crypto came from. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's interesting because I think, um, you know, my, uh, I had a similar thing where, you know, I, I've been heavily involved in what we call real assets, you know, real, real estate and, you know, precious metals, things like that. And, um, a lot of the content that I was consuming, uh, is my usual source of information. People in my circle, so to speak, was very negative about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, Bitcoin in particular. And, um, and so my, uh, like you initially, I come and, and I think this is a real problem, I think, is that, you know, people get in the habit of just listening to others around them and not listening to new ideas. And and so it was very easy to just say digital currency. This sounds like some kind of a joke. Uh, you know, what is this Bitcoin? It sounds like, you know, it doesn't sound real. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's, uh, it's, it's interesting that you kind of came to that realization. Now, what was it about, um, what was it about cryptocurrency? What was it about blockchain? What was it about, you know, distributed ledgers? What is it that you are, um, what, what makes you interested in this beyond, well, obviously as a financial instrument, but uh, tell me what got you really interested in, in wanting you to do it. Sure. Well, you know, look, I mean, if you, if you, if you study it specifically, right, I'm talking mostly about Bitcoin now, which is in my view, the, you know, the kind of the surest bet, if you will, um, for the foreseeable future. Um, and the, the investment thesis of a better gold than gold, it was really compelling to me. Now, do you know, yes, blockchain as a, as a driver, uh, you know, of the next internet 3.0, the ability to change the world in, in ways that we haven't thought of yet. That, that's all, it's interesting, it's compelling, I think it will happen. But for me, that actually isn't the thing that, um, 
caused me to get interested in it. I, I really, I've always, in all of my investment um, philosophies, I tell people, I, you know what, I could be investing in pork bellies. Like, the, the, you know, I don't really care what it is. I don't have, you know, an, a, I try not to um, invest based on my outlook for, for a, an underlying asset, whether it's going to do well or poorly. What I try to do is set up all of our um, investments so that um, if things go well, I make money, but if things don't go well, uh, I, I still make money or, or I don't lose a lot of money. And, and I, so I, I tend to try to be really agnostic when it comes to the underlying um, asset. You know, that said, I can't help, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have come out of retirement if I didn't think that this really was the next big thing. Um, if, you know, if I'm honest with myself, yeah, it's really exciting stuff. Um, you know, Aust the, uh, the Austrian economics may finally, you know, see its day. So, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I think about it. So when you're, when you're talking about, um, approaching it, you know, I think as a, again, I, I as you're, you're approaching it almost more like a traditional financial instrument, right? I mean, it, it sounds like you've, uh, and I don't, I don't know what your, your, your method is, but the, what you were alluding to sounds like you're kind of approaching it, you know, not just from a long position, but from a short position and hedging and all that. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach Bitcoin in particular? Yeah. Um, so what, yeah, I, I do approach it like a traditional financial instrument. I think that's one of the really important lessons for people is that yes it's a new asset class yes it's a really exciting asset class um for for multiple reasons um it has this big huge upside potential it has you know multiple diversification and hedging um, uh, um uh, benefits to the rest of the portfolio and it should be thought of as another asset class amongst all the others in your portfolio, right? It, it's exciting, but it's just another asset class. All the same rules of investing still apply here, right? And and that's where I feel like people get um, kind of carried away and, oh, this is all something new and they invest way too much money or they're not thoughtful about what, what is the job that this asset class is supposed to do in my portfolio? Because everything that you have in the portfolio do, has a purpose and a job, right? And so, um, so I, I very much think of it in terms of, okay, it's just part of my alternative asset bucket. Um, and, uh, and so how, do, how am I going to structure that? Um, the right now, because I, the people that I am working with are um, mostly baby boomers, higher net worth baby boomers who have experience with the stock market and public markets, but uh, you know not much beyond that. Um, to the um, you know the um, instruments that would allow us to do anything as sophisticated as what we were doing in the Snyder method, they just don't exist yet, right? right? Yes, mm -hmm. there are clearly some people, some exchanges that will allow margin. There are clearly some exchanges that will allow you to short, but those are pretty, they're, they're somewhat obscure, yeah. you know, you, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And so, 
so the methodology is really quite, um, quite, quite simple. A lot of the um, downside protection that we have is simply disposition sizing um, and making sure that we are um, very conservative in terms of what we're investing in and, uh, and, and how we position it as, as part of our overall portfolio. It's really actually at this point, not that, not that, um, you know, it's, there's just not that much to it. It's really a lot of common sense at this point, but. Mm -hmm. Do you have a certain, I don't, I mean, do you, you consider it an uncorrelated asset? Do you, how big of a position do you recommend? I mean, do you have some of those guidelines generally for, you know, some of your people that typically are your, you know, your stereo, your, your typical client that you'd have? Yeah. So, so here's the way I think of it. Um, I think of it, I think it has served three purposes in the portfolio. One is we have pretty good evidence now that like the gold portion of the portfolio or you know, a, the commodities portion of your portfolio, that Bitcoin specifically acts as a hedge against hyperinflation, okay? which is a big concern and a big reason that we have that al uh, alternative bucket. Two is that it's non-correlated. So it provides some uh, protection against market risk. And then three, of course, is the fact that there is this massive upside potential. And so let me tell you how I think about that. And then I'll tell you why, what I recommend and why I recommend it. So to me, the thing that um, you asked me, like what, what interested me about it and why I got into it. It really, it wasn't the fact that it was blockchain or, or the potential of the distributed ledger. What was so interesting to me is that I have spent my entire financial career trying to solve a problem for a specific group. And that is 76 million baby boomers in the United States who are going to be retiring and they don't have enough money to do that because they got a late start because there was a bait and switch. They thought they had pensions and now they realize they have to fund that themselves. And that takes a lot of money. And most of them, even though they may have a million or two saved, right? They, they need more than that. So there's a gap. How do you fill that gap? That was the purpose of, the, of the, the Snyder method. And the real reason that I came out of retirement is because all of a sudden it dawned on me that cryptocurrency could be the answer to our prayers on solving that problem. And I emphasize the word could, of course, right? But so here's the other way. Okay, yes, it has these wonderful, um, you know, alternative asset uh, characteristics to it, which are. But to me, the, you know, those are the, the 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 real exciting thing is this upside potential. So think of it this way. Let's just imagine that I've got a five hundred thousand dollar portfolio, and my rule of thumb. It, well, first of all, let's just let's just say in retirement, if you take the four percent withdrawal rate, which is kind of standard, um, uh, that means that that portfolio will generate $20,000 a year of retirement income, 500,000 times 4%. Okay, now my rule of thumb is that you should not put more than 2% of your investable assets in cryptocurrency. And that's a lot lower than what a lot of other people think, a lot lower. But the, here's the, let me explain the reasoning why. So let's just imagine 2% of $500,000, that's $10,000. Okay, I invest $10,000 and I lose all of it. All right, worse, so that's worse, 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 worst case. 
That means that the invest the retirement income potential of my portfolio, which is the thing I care about most, and uh, and most of my investors care about most, has gone from twenty thousand to nineteen thousand six hundred dollars. Yeah. Not catastrophic, right? Not ideal, but not catastrophic. Now, on the other hand, let's take just you know, not all of these crazy numbers that people throw around like Bitcoin, million dollar Bitcoin. Okay, let's just take last year's returns. No, no guarantee that they'll happen again this year or that they'll ever happen again. But last year's returns were 1,334%. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you take that applied to that $10,000 investment, that's $125,000. Right. That $10,000 turns into $125,000. What you've just done is you've raised the income potential of that portfolio from $20,000 to $25,000 for that little 2% investment that, oh, by the way, is also a hedge against inflation and, 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 uh, and market risk. I get that this upside potential, that's a 25% raise for life, for life, like right. these, this sort of an upside opportunity. And again, it's not a guarantee, but even the opportunity, it's like the ability for us to invest in venture capital. Like, you know, like these are unicorn type numbers. Like you get to be an early stage investor in mm -hmm. Airbnb or, or Facebook, right? And, and, it's a, and it's available to you and I, that is so, game-changing potentially for so many people that is the reason that i came out of retirement um to start saying crypto that's what's exciting to me yeah. <clears throat> i've referred to that as the sort of an asymmetric risk you know profile so that's that's one of the arguments i think that you know i've made in the past too is that you know people say well it's risky but i i don't know i mean i Bitcoin right now is is pretty solid. Um, I don't I don't even actually think it's as risky as a lot of people still want to make it out to be, but um, but it's still but it's still an asymmetric risk. It still could drop by 90 percent, but it could still go up ten uh, x. All you got all you got to do is get the institutional buyers in there, and the market cap goes way up. Do you limit what your own portfolio or what you're advising on Bitcoin? Or are you uh, outside of Bitcoin as well? We do include other others as well, but it is very, very, very limited. Mm -hmm. I am not an advocate of ICOs at all, which I know probably you know some of your other uh, guests on the show um, are much bigger um, bulls on that than me. I lived through and was trading. I was an options trader during the dot-com uh, bubble and, and burst. I saw that firsthand and it, and it wasn't pretty. And, and so let me tell you why I'm not a big proponent. In fact, I'm a, I think you should stay away from ICOs for now. One, I just, I fundamentally have a, have a problem with the whole concept of basically it's like a reverse fundraising, <laughs> you know, basically you're raising millions of dollars in exchange and for no ownership, no say in the company on the basis of a white paper. I mean, you know, I, I just think that's crazy and fraught with, with, you know, uh, the, the odds are, are going to be against you because it's just a, a, um, invitation for people to steal money from you. But moreover, that aside, there's really three reasons that I, I think you should stay away from ICOs. One is the regulatory overhang. 
I think everybody understands that it's very, um, there is a lot of risk right now in terms of how the US regulatory FINRA SEC are going to classify these Two is the, the, what I call wrong wave, like a lot of, so, and, and that refers to Steve Case, who's the founder of AOL, his book, The Third Wave. If you haven't read it, it's a really good roadmap for thinking about what, how the, the stages that the internet has gone through. And, and then um, if you apply that to cryptocurrency, it's very obvious to me that what we're doing right now is we're working on the plumbing of the blockchain, right? That's the Bitcoins and the Ethereums of the world. And that the reason that we had pets.com and the globe.com fail so spectacularly is because they, the, they were the wrong wave. They were people in the first wave when we were still trying to lay the fiber under the ocean, right? And put the plumbing together for the internet. They were trying to build you know, these, these applications on top of it, which are, were essentially, if you think about it, you know, Chewy.com and Facebook, but because they came too early, um, you know, they failed. And so I think we are in that first wave phase um, in which you only invest in the plumbing. And the plumbing to me is things like Ethereum, um, Bitcoin, etc. right? So, so a very narrow group of fairly, you know, lower risk, um, uh, assets that I would be comfortable holding. Um, and then the, the third thing um, is kind of wonky. I won't spend a lot of time on it, um, but it's what they call the velocity problem. I would encourage you to, to look it up um, if you're interested. It, it basically refers to the fact that um, as these um, uh, as money, um, the, the higher the velocity, meaning the more successful these tokens are, that the, the price should approximate zero. Um, and nobody actually talks about really the velocity problem, but it's a, but it's a significant problem. And um, if you just search cryptocurrency, the velocity problem, there's lots of papers and things on it where you can, you can look more uh, into that. What do you think is going to happen over the next two or three years? You see a lot of activity. You know, see a lot of activity from institutional buyers from Wall Street. Some of them are pretending they're not involved, but they are. And um, where do you see this all headed in the next two or three years? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what's your hunch after this many years in, in the finance sector? Sure. I think, as you kind of alluded to, there is major, major, major amounts of institutional money sitting on the sidelines trying to figure out how they are going to make this play. And um, that money will come in. I think it, you know, we, we keep saying, oh, within the next year, within the next year, but it, it will happen, whether it's this year, next year, you know, within the next couple of years. I think there's really three things that need to happen for institutional uh, investors to come in and main widespread mainstream adoption. One of those things is just regulatory clarity. That's going to take some time, um, but we're making progress. Second thing, a, a huge thing, is this custody issue. I can't, there's, I cannot manage funds for you yet, because as a small registered investment advisor, the infrastructure just doesn't exist for me, much less for you know these huge sovereign wealth funds and and um, and uh, endowments and 
family offices and you know they're just they're playing around the edges with these hedge funds but the real money is still waiting for custody solutions that's coming people are working on it uh, uh, coinbase and backed and some of these others I, I mean I think backed is a big deal um, this uh, the uh, thing that the ice is doing because I think those you know those institutional that institutional money, I don't care what the people say, they are not going to trust Coinbase with that money. They want some, a name, a Goldman Sachs or a, you know, a New York Stock Exchange name behind that custody solution. So I think BACT is, is a really important step in that direction. Um, and just so, and, uh, just and just then, you know, up. there's, once we get that sorted, um, then I, I really think that to make this easier than for, um, you have to have the liquidity there and then to make it easier for the retail investor yeah. because right now obviously it's like you know trying to send an email in 1993 right. it's it's pretty ugly but it's uh, coming yeah no absolutely and you uh, like you mentioned the custodians uh you know are, are on their way we know that uh goldman is is made at a higher goldman sachs has made it a higher priority now um and uh, all the infrastructure is being laid so you know uh, I think it's very uh, optimistic for and bullish for the uh, for cryptocurrencies in general. Uh, but um, anyway, Kim, I want to thank you for being on the show and uh, you know giving us your perspective, uh, sort of on the larger financial perspective on crypto as well as your own experiences. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I uh, I really admire what you've done and the um, the great information that you give on your podcast. So it's it's an honor. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. Want to buy Bitcoin with your IRA? Don't waste your time on expensive IRA custodians. A strategy called a QRP is as easy as writing a check. Find out how. Text 44222 and type QRP book. That's one word. And get a free book that explains everything. Again, that's 44222 QRP book. One word. It's the easiest way to make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies part of your retirement. Welcome back, everybody. And uh, now I am going to go into the weekly round of questions from the audience, questions and answers to the best of my ability. Now, uh, this is not financial advice. And I'm, um, I don't claim to be an expert, actually. I'm, uh, I'm learning just like you guys. Maybe, you know, the thing about this cryptocurrency world is that if you know something, you probably know more than most people. But anyway, um, I'd like to move on to your questions. And by the way, I want to urge you, because I think it's a really important part of what I'm trying to accomplish here, I'd like to urge you to go to consensusnetwork.io and definitely, you know, write some questions, record a question, whatever you want to do and for the show. And uh, preferably you you use the voicemail thing there. But if you can't, that's OK, too. But I know some people don't want to do that. But you can also if you don't want to go to the website, just email them to me at info at consensus network dot io. Again, that's info at consensus network dot io. Uh, so let's move on here with the first question of the week, and it's from JC, and it's a good question. Buck, with all the good news you keep talking about, why is the market tanking? 
Yeah, 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 exactly, right? I mean, why is it tanky? It's actually a very good question. And I I wish I knew exactly why uh, that that it happened, why it's happening, but I believe it's multiple causes at this point. I, I think first, there was the instability uh, in the market in general that was triggered from this whole Bitcoin cash hard fork with Bitcoin Cash, uh, SV versus ABC, all that nonsense that really didn't have anything to do with Bitcoin proper at all, except for the fact that Craig Wright, uh, who is the Bitcoin SV guy who claimed to be uh, Satoshi himself, some people call him fake Toshi because of that, he had threatened to dump uh, all of his Bitcoin in order you know, it's sort of a retaliation. He was going to dump all of his Bitcoin and he was trying to scare people. And so the idea is uh, apparently he he was thought to have like a million Bitcoin. And that's a lot of Bitcoin to sell. That would be a huge, huge hit to the market. Um, because remember, you know, I read somewhere that there was really only about three or four million uh, Bitcoin that are actually in circulation. The rest are actually, you know, pretty much being hodled. You know, some of them have been lost in someone's computer, you know, or some drive back in 2010, and they're in the garbage somewhere. There's probably billions of dollars of Bitcoin in garbage, garbages across the country. So as there's that, and of course, there's only been about 17 million Bitcoin uh, mined to date. So there's still another, you know, four, uh, four million or so coming. So a, a million Bitcoin hitting this market for sale and getting dumped would have been uh, a big problem. Of course, we have no reason to believe that that actually happened. And I also heard from another source that it's thought that um, uh, the right has far less than a million. They may have more around 50,000 Bitcoin, which is still a lot of Bitcoin, but it's not a million Bitcoin, right? So that's one of the things that I think that started the instability. I don't think that was the whole thing. I think it's multifactorial. I think that once that initial craziness happened, what I think happened was really kind of getting into this whole technical and technical analysis stuff. You know, um, once the initial sell off happened, I think we hit a bunch of stop losses. So what do I mean by that? So say a lot of traders use these techniques, right? They buy Bitcoin, say they buy at 6,500, but they are only willing to take losses up to 6,000. If it hits 6,000, it triggers an automatic sell. When that happens, of course, that brings the market down even more. And so I think what happened was that we hovered around 6,000 for so long. I think that a lot of people considered that the floor. And um, I think there was probably a lot of stop losses set for 5,900 or so where you know we seem to have found a bottom. And once it penetrated that because of some of the fear and uncertainty and stuff, I think it triggered a lot of stop losses, frankly. And then that drove prices down. And then you have the other thing that happened, which was basically, if you recall, there's all these ICOs that took their funding in Ethereum or Bitcoin, or maybe they turned it into Bitcoin, whatever. And they realized that the markets were tanking they had ICOs, they basically funded their entire businesses with cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency was dropping fast 
And if they wanted to save their projects, they needed to get out and put some of that into fiat and save the project. So I think that was part of what happened. I mean, you saw it with Steam uh, recently. I think they laid off something like an enormous number, like 70% of their staff or something, because they basically couldn't afford them anymore. So I think that, along with the fact that the ICO world is you know, kind of under attack from the SEC, they're going after some of these projects um, you know, that, that were already uh, done. There's certainly uh, not going to be any more ICOs, at least in the United States, uh, in, in the near future. But in terms of those that were already done, they're going after some of those projects. And you know what? Um, I think there's some fear and uncertainty in those projects. I think there's a lot of dumping, price dumping, fear dumping. It's just, you know, it's just uh, sort of compounded on itself. The bottom line is, I think sometimes we get into a position like now where nothing is really rational. I mean, this is technical sell-offs adding to fear and uncertainty, despair, FUD, that's what they call it. And now I also think, and I, I can tell this myself as being a buyer, I think there are a lot of buyers on the sideline who want to see where all this settles. We may still be strong believers in Bitcoin and in uh, blockchain and distributed ledger technologies in general, but we're saying, hey, you know, if I'm going to buy more, I'm going to wait till this thing settles down. It may even be more expensive than it is now, but I don't really want this sort of volatility, not knowing if, you know, I buy something for 3000 it goes down to 1000 you know, and, and, it, and it takes a year for it to come back. I don't really want to participate in that. I'll just hold off until things kind of stabilize. And there's that, that camp as well. Anyway, I think the bottom line is, again, that if you are, if you're looking at the institutions and saying, well, where's that money? Why is this not bringing it all in? I think that it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but I do think it's going to, uh, that a lot of money is going to come into the market. And overall, in the long term, I'm, I'm still very, very bullish. Now, what is long term? That I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping long term means three to six months, but. It's hard to say, right? I mean, no one knows. I mean, even the technical guys, they're saying bear market. They're still looking at, you know, what's going on is very volatile. They're not getting excited by any prices going up at all. They're saying, you know, we still have some, uh, we still have a bottom to hit. So hopefully that answers the question. Eric has a question. He says, I read somewhere that it costs about $6,500 to mine Bitcoin. Why would miners still mine if uh, that were expensive? If it were that expensive, shouldn't that destroy the whole system? Well, it's it's another really good question. So let me say, as far as the cost of mining Bitcoin, you know, it's it's hard to say exactly how much it is. Um, I'm sure it costs some miners sixty five hundred dollars, but it's really the cost of the electricity that determines the cost um, the cost for Bitcoin. So remember that if you look at China, for example. Uh, China supposedly or surrounding you know Asian countries have about 70% of the hashing power and um, electricity there is a lot cheaper than it is here and from what I've read that you know the good miners the efficient uh, operators out there in Asia can still do this at 3000 3500 bucks so i mean and we were only in that area for a very short period of time so we wouldn't have lost them and also remember 
Uh, I think it's important to remember that the cost of mining Bitcoin essentially depends on how much competition there is. I mean, when Bitcoin was down, uh, well, when Bitcoin was down way at like $10, when I wish I had known about it and bought some, it didn't cost $6,500 to mine it. I mean, it, it becomes more expensive to mine when there are more miners because the whole thing is based on competition. So some miners will certainly drop off because the price of Bitcoin does not go up fast enough and they just can't afford to mine anymore. But then, then you have that uh, balanced off by basically um, less competition in the market and the cost of mining goes down. Um, and, and the last thing to remember, I would say on that point is that remember that a lot of these miners made a lot of money in the last few years, you know, in other words, you know, mining at a loss in the short term, may be something they're willing to do as, as a business decision, right? And they've got plenty of, plenty of money sitting around as, as working capital. So anyway, that's, that's my take on that. Again, um, I don't think. I don't think, uh, you know, I'm certainly not an authority in mining at all, but that's that's kind of what I gathered. The last question I have is from Ernie. I heard uh, this guy, Andrew Ross Sorkin, uh, talk about how Bitcoin keeps getting diluted because of forks and that 21 million Bitcoin becomes diluted when there are forks. Is that true? And if not, what's the counter argument? This is an interesting thing. I've heard a lot of people say this. And in fact, before, when I saw this question, I uh, Googled the, this Andrew Ross Sorkin. He's a guy at the New York Times, and he's on this crypto show. They talk about trading um, as well. And I've heard this argument before. I've heard it actually from you know Peter Schiff as well, who's a guy who, you know, in general, I respect Peter. You know, I disagree with his his views on Bitcoin. A really interesting inter, uh, debate that is worth looking at um, was between uh, Peter Schiff and Eric Voorhees of Shapeshift. Uh, uh, put that in in YouTube, and it's an argument that or it's a it's a debate they had about about Bitcoin versus gold, basically. But anyway, uh, so Andrew Ross Sorkin. Um, had this this comment basically about well gosh you know now that there's bitcoin and there's these forks and there's bitcoin cash and then bitcoin has its forks and there's that whole idea that even though there's only one 21 million bitcoin ever going to be created that somehow these forks then dilute bitcoin and then that becomes a form of printing money well I would just say to this point, because I heard Peter Schiff say the same thing against uh, Eric Voorhees. I think that Andrew and I think that Peter Schiff are missing the point on this. Bitcoin is not Bitcoin Cash. You know, Bitcoin is not Zcash. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. It's BTC. It's sort of like, you know, and saying that, you know, that these forks are diluting Bitcoin, it's sort of like saying that, Silver is diluting gold. It, no, they're not the same thing. And some product that looks like gold is not gold. Faux gold is not gold. They're different. Now, you know, as somebody who is who is a believer in Bitcoin, I, I can say that, but I, the numbers show it too. And that's what you see. So before Bitcoin Cash and before the recent Bitcoin cash split and before this ICO 
you know, thing. There's always been the case that Bitcoin has pretty much always maintained at least half of the total market capitalization. And that's exactly what you're seeing right now. Now, if Sorkin was right, if Peter was right, that would not be the case. You would still, you would not have, you know, 50% Bitcoin dominance still in, in, with regard to market capitalization because each new coin, each new fork, et cetera, would, would create a, a relative, um, you know, dilution of market capitalization for Bitcoin. And I guess all I can say is it's really just math. It's just not true. Uh, people who people know that BTC is BTC. BTC is not, you know, BCH. BC, uh, BTC is not Zcash. It's not anything else. It's BTC. So, um, and 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 again, the market caps show that. The evidence is pretty clear on that. There's only 21 million Bitcoin. There ever will be 21 million Bitcoin. Anyway, that's all for the questions I've got. I have a couple of favors to ask. One is to make sure you ask questions. Go to consensusnetwork.io. Ask your questions there. Send me an, an email, info at consensusnetwork.io. The other thing is if you're on Twitter, I've been pretty active on there. And um, under uh, if you look up Consensus Network on Twitter, follow me there because I don't have very many people following me right now. And it, it looks kind of bad, even though I have actually a fair number of listeners now to this podcast. They just haven't mentioned the Twitter stuff, but I am on um, Twitter. Look up consensus network. I'm pretty active there and follow me and, uh, and you know, reach out, reach out and talk. All right. Anyway, that's it for me uh, this week on consensus network. This is Buck Joffrey signing off.